0: All Bones Considered, Laurel Hill Stories, podcast number 19. The Other Side of Paradise, Monsignor Sigourney Fay, Hobie Baker, and the F. Scott Fitzgerald Connection. cemetery is a national historic landmark an arboretum a sculpture garden a nature preserve and an active cemetery in philadelphia pennsylvania it opened in 1836 and remains a popular visiting spot for thousands of people every year its sister cemetery west laurel hill cemetery located across the schuylkill river in Bala Kinwood was founded in 1869 It has a history and a population of its own. Join me for the next hour or so to learn about some interesting folks interred at Laurel Hill Cemetery and West Laurel Hill Cemetery who have pretty amazing stories. You might think of F. Scott Fitzgerald as a Midwesterner who made his name in New York City. Why would he have Philadelphia connections? Well, he did. Sigourney Webster Fay was born in Philadelphia to an old-line Episcopalian family, but left that religion to become a Catholic priest. He became the most important influence in the life of the schoolboy, F. Scott Fitzgerald, and the inspiration for one of his most widely loved characters in This Side of Paradise. When Fitzgerald matriculated at Princeton, he was three years behind the golden boy, Hobart Amory Hare Hobie Baker, who not only showed up as a minor character in This Side of Paradise, but gave one of his family names to the character Fitzgerald identified as himself, Amory Blaine. Get ready for a literary exploration of two amazing Philadelphians in this October 2020 edition of All Bones Considered Laurel Hill Stories, The Other Side of Paradise. I'm Joe Lex. When Susan Weaver was 14 years old, she was more than 5 feet 10 inches tall. She decided that Susan was not a good name for someone so statuesque. Searching for a more distinctive name, she found a character in Chapter 3 of F. Scott Fitzgerald's The Great Gatsby, who had a name that she liked. It was Jordan Baker's aunt, Mrs. Sigourney Howard. She took the name and became Sigourney Weaver. Now, it's possible Sigourney Weaver would have been a very successful actress with a less striking name. Perhaps a more intriguing question is to what extent the actual real-life Sigourney, whose name Fitzgerald borrowed for his fiction, might have infiltrated and even expanded Weaver's dramatic persona. The Sigourney of Fitzgerald acquaintance was Cyril Sigourney Webster Fay born in 1875 into an illustrious Philadelphia Episcopalian family, who went on to become a rather flamboyant Catholic priest, an expert on Russian Orthodox religion, a special messenger for a Pope and a Cardinal, and the invaluable muse of F. Scott Fitzgerald. Fitzgerald met Father Fay in his second year of prep school and was absolutely awestruck. He had never met anyone like him. He later called Fay a Richelieu born at the wrong place and time. They took an instant liking to one another. In Fitzgerald's first novel, The Side of Paradise, he wrote of his protagonist Amory Blaine's first meeting of the priest, here named Monsignor Thayer Darcy. Monsignor Darcy says to Amory, My dear boy, I've been waiting to see you for years. Take a big chair and we'll have a chat. Fitzgerald follows with quote They slipped briskly into an intimacy from which they never recovered. End quote. Sigourney Fay immediately replaced Edward Fitzgerald as a father figure, and was the most important adult in Fitzgerald's life during his high school, college, and military experience. Sigourney Webster Fay was born to Civil War veteran Alford Forbes Fay and old-time Philadelphian Suzanne Hutchinson Fay. They had married in 1869. He was named for his father's older brother, a Boston businessman. Alford Fay served in the Union Army for nearly four years, rising from sergeant to captain, and he suffered a gunshot wound to his knee in August 1862. He was honorably discharged for physical disability in 1865 the gunshot wound, an inguinal hernia, rheumatism, and scurvy from a want of vegetables while serving in the Western Territory. He died in Philadelphia at age 39 in 1881, leaving his wife, his six year old son, Sigourney, and his four year old daughter, Mary. Suzanne Hutchinson Fay, I have also seen her name as Susan and Susanna, and spelled about five different ways, came from the prominent Hutchinson-Philadelphia family established in the revolutionary times. Dr. James H. Hutchinson was a radical patriot who was friends with Benjamin Franklin and George Washington, but after his death, John Adams wrote to Thomas Jefferson, referring to him as an enemy. His social standing allowed his family to mingle with the Rittenhouse- Horton, and Girard families. Dr. Hutchinson died in 1793 of yellow fever while treating other victims during that epidemic. His next several generations became prominent in Philadelphia medicine, commerce, and law, and produced offspring with such familiar Philadelphia names as Biddle, Hare, Emelin, and Pemberton. After Alford's death, Suzanne never remarried and outlived her husband by 45 years. She was well-off financially and mixed easily in Philadelphia society, spending summers at their large New Jersey Shore home. She was a devout Episcopalian, and she raised her children the same. Sigourney Webster Fay attended University of Pennsylvania and graduated in 1897. In addition to his studies, he was involved with theater. He was a founder of the Philadelphia Garrick Club. This continued after graduation. I found a review in the May 7, 1899 edition of the Philadelphia Times. It mentions Fay in their write-up of a presentation of Elizabethan playwright John Fletcher's The Tamer Tamed. Quote, The cast has been selected with care. Sigourney W. Fay is well known in collegiate circles as one possessing considerable histrionic ability. His impersonation of Mrs. Malaprop in Sheridan's masterpiece, which was given with great success a year or two by the Garrick Club, was received with much appreciation. Mr. Fay has also taken parts in Farquhar's Inconstant and Pinero's Dandy Dick, given also by the Garrick Club. End quote. Faye was noted in this play as playing the role of Maria, daughter of Petronius, and second wife of Petruchio. Although it was not uncommon at that time for men to take women's roles, Sigourney specialized in them. Every review I found of a play that he was in said that he played a female role. After graduating from Penn, Sigourney entered the nearby Episcopal Divinity School and studied for the priesthood. He was ordained in 1903 in Fond du Lac, Wisconsin, the most Catholic and conservative of the Episcopalian High Church Diocese. Father Fay was appointed professor of Dogmatic and Moral Theology at Nashota House in Fond du Lac where he joined a group of Anglican clergymen, the Companions of the Holy Savior. They conducted private daily Masses for each priest almost totally according to the Roman Rite, using the Roman breviary, Eucharistic vestments, Gregorian chant, and incense. In 1905, Fay went on an extended tour of Tsarist Russia, which awakened in him an interest in the Eastern Church. While at Neshota, he was considered an innovative, if somewhat frivolous, scholar, a popular, if not always effective, teacher, and an influential colleague, and a generous benefactor. In 1907, Fay and other members of the American Oxford Movement broke from the Episcopalian Church. The next year, Fay converted to Catholicism and assumed the Christian name Cyril reflecting his interest in the Eastern Church. Rather than seek ordination as a Catholic priest from Archbishop Ryan in Philadelphia, Fay headed to the Baltimore Archdiocese, headed by Cardinal James Gibbons, America's second appointed cardinal, who sent him to Catholic University for further study. And in June 1910, he was ordained as a priest and was assigned to a parish in Washington, D.C., but he continued his studies at Catholic University and, after two years, left his parish to become faculty in sacred liturgy and ecclesiastical Greek. He taught at Catholic University for three years. Father Fay's mother was obviously upset by this change. She had raised her boy to be an Episcopalian, not a Catholic priest. In 1907, the dentist Andrew Swanton Burke had married her daughter. Mary Forbes Fay. That same year, Suzanne moved from Philadelphia to Montgomery Avenue in Winwood, followed by the Burks, who lived nearby. Dr. Burke was a devout Episcopalian. He began holding vespers in his home. A small Episcopalian congregation grew. Burke's mother-in-law, Suzanne, encouraged him, the current pastor of the church used the term browbeat, to study for the Episcopalian priesthood and made him a promise. She would build him a church when he graduated. And in 1911, the year after Sigourney was ordained a Catholic priest, ground was broken at Montgomery Avenue and Gypsy Lane in Wynwood for the All Saints Protestant Episcopal Mission Church. The first service was led by Dr. Andrew Swanton Burke on December 3, 1911, just three weeks before he was ordained to the priesthood. The Reverend A.S. Burke died of perforated ulcer in 1919 and was buried in the Hutchinson Fay family lot at Laurel Hill Cemetery. His wife, Mary Forbes Fay Burke, outlived him by more than 40 years and died in 1961. Father Cyril Sigourney Fay, he now used the two names interchangeably, formed many friendships during his years in our nation's capital. Among them was Henry Adams, America's premier historian and descendant of its foremost political dynasty, one of whom had called Fay's ancestor an enemy. Although Fay could not convert Adams to Catholicism, they shared many hours discussing their mutual interest of music of the High Middle Ages. Through Adams, he also met Winthrop and Margaret Chandler. More about them shortly. Fay was too much in demand as a retreat master and a preacher to stay in one place for long. In 1915, Cardinal Gibbons appointed him chaplain and then headmaster of the Newman School for Boys in Hackensack, New Jersey, a prep school founded in 1900 by Catholic laypeople, also converts from Episcopalianism. The founder's intention was to create the equivalent to Groton, St. Paul's, Milton Academy, and others— with the addition of teaching Roman Catholic religious and moral training. it was named for the English cardinal John Henry Newman, yet another Episcopalian convert to Catholicism. Newman was named a saint of the Catholic Church in 2019. Father Faye may have labored there unknown beyond his students, but for a troubled youth from Minnesota who was doing poorly at St. Paul Academy, in St. Paul, not the Wasp Ivy League prep school of the same name in New Hampshire. Francis Scott Key Fitzgerald, better known as F. Scott, was born in 1896. He had an overbearing mother and a distant father. He had received a Catholic education and was struggling with his studies and his own identity. His parents heard about the Newman School and shipped him off to New Jersey in 1911 when he was 15 years old. By this time, Newman School had grown from its 1900 census of four students up to 60 boys. And here in 1914, Fitzgerald met the man who would change his life, Father Sigourney Fay, who introduced Scott to a Catholicism he never knew existed. Quote, He made of that church a dazzling golden thing dispelling its oppressive mugginess and giving the succession of days upon gray days the romantic glamour of an adolescent dream. Fay also introduced him to the writings of Oscar Wilde, Good Wine, Whiskey, and the Whirlwind Society of Washington DC. Fitzgerald's biographers described Fay as a fond de siècle esthete of considerable appeal. Quote, a dandy, always heavily perfumed. Fay was a man of irresistibly infectious charm, who loved to gossip and tell stories which he punctuated with high-pitched giggles. Fitzgerald called him the most romantic character I have ever met. Fay essentially adopted Fitzgerald. He took him on trips to visit his society Catholic friends, including the Chandlers and Henry Adams, who appeared in Paradise as Thornton Hancock. A Fitzgerald biographer, Joan M. Allen, says in her Candles and Carnival Lights, the Catholic sensibility of F. Scott Fitzgerald, quote, Fay was a charming, eccentric, and altogether delightful phenomenon for Fitzgerald, who had never seen anyone quite like him. The corpulent albino with a high-pitched voice and shrill laughter presented a startling exterior. His contagious merriment, however, his wit, and most important, his interest in and sympathy for Fitzgerald, who he saw was suffering even as Fay himself must have as a boy, won Fitzgerald over quickly. End quote. At America's entry into the war in 1917, Faye was assigned many missions by Cardinal Gibbons. He joined a Red Cross team scheduled for a visit to Russia in June because of his deep knowledge of the Orthodox Church. He offered to take the young Fitzgerald along as his secretary, and Scott applied for his passport. But the Bolshevik Revolution caused them to cancel those plans. Society Catholic Margaret Louisa Terry Chandler, her friends called her Daisy, was an especially close friend of Fay's who introduced Fitzgerald to her. She was yet another Episcopalian converted to Catholicism. She was married to Winthrop Astor Chandler, an Astor orphan and one of Teddy Roosevelt's rough writers. Other friends who visited frequently were Henry James, Edith Wharton, Henry Adams, Franz Liszt, Edward Lear, and George Gershwin. Henry James declared Daisy the only truly cultivated woman in America. In her 1936 autobiography, Autumn in the Valley, Chandler drops names left and right, including Theodore Roosevelt, who was godfather for her eighth and last child, also named Theodore. The boy's godmother was Mrs. Henry Cabot Lodge. Father Fay fit in perfectly among these societal figures and immediately felt at home with the channelers and their friends. Daisy dedicates several pages to Father Fay's frequent visits to their country home, Sweetbriar. He was one of those guests who know how to add a certain zest to the routine of family life to make the waters bubble and sparkle. He was a learned man with much of the delightful child about him. He combined spiritual with temporal gifts, for he preached admirably and could bring fire from heaven to kindle the hearts of his hearers. But he was no ascetic, and he dearly loved good company, good food, and drink. End quote. She related an anecdote about a plague of army worms that was threatening local crops. Father Fay performed an exorcism, complete with bell, book, and candle the advancing army of worms turned east before reaching the Chandlers. Mrs. Chandler writes of another visit from Fay at their summer home. She describes a game of role-playing between the priest and her children. Quote, Father Fay was tall and exceedingly fat, and aside here his passport lists him as being five foot eight. Back to the text. He played the part of the Pope, acting it with great gusto, How could he leave the Vatican? Everyone would recognize him. Lady Aberdeen had an inspiration. She would lend him her clothes, a fine silver gown she had made to wear at a garden party at Buckingham Palace. The idea appealed to him, and the thing was done. But how describe dear Father Fay's appearance, disguised as Lady Aberdeen, in a curious silver brocade garment Winthrop had long ago brought back from Morocco. It looked very incongruous with a large Florentine straw hat trimmed with roses and blue ribbons flopping over his round face and spectacled blue eyes. Another Fitzgerald biographer Father Fay had a continental air with his silver buckled pumps and cassocks tailored in Paris. In other words, in the language of the day, Father Fay was a dandy. After his failed Russian mission, the Red Cross wanted Fay to become a member of its permanent mission to Italy. He was commissioned as a major in the U.S. Army. Daisy Chandler notes that he did not mind looking ridiculous in a khaki uniform stretched over his vast bulk, which gave him the appearance of a sausage in its casing. When he did travel to Italy, he was befriended by Pope Benedict XV, and immediately became involved in negotiations to expunge a clause from a secret treaty that excluded the Holy See from participation in the World War Peace Conference. Since Fay was also a friend of the British Foreign Minister and of several members of the British Commission in Washington, it was decided to undertake further diplomacy in England rather than approach President Woodrow Wilson. Fay had already used his British connections to help commute death sentences for several captured revolutionaries after the Easter uprising of 1916, including Amon de Valera, who later, of course, became head of government and head of state. While Fay was overseas in 1918, his friend Henry Adams lay on his deathbed with a single candle burning and kept repeating, "'Father Fay will come and tell us all things.'" A month after Adams' death, an article called The Genesis of the Super-German, which Adams and Fay co-wrote, was published in the Dublin Review. Before Fay left the Vatican to return home, the Pope surprised him by making him a domestic prelate of the apostolic household with the title of Monsignor. When he returned, he visited the Chandlers once again with a vast trunk of his monsignorial uniforms and showed off his ecclesiastical finery with childish glee. Again, from Autumn in the Valley. Quote, But you have not seen what I wear on state occasions at the Vatican. Don't you want to? He bounced from his seat and upstairs. Like other fat people I have known, he was very light on his feet and moved with the specific gravity of a toy balloon that has come down but barely touches the earth. In a few minutes, he appeared again, glorious, in rustling purple pink Ferraiuaulo over a purple cassock of a heavier silk, picked out with bright carmine pipings and carmine buttons, and a fine purple pink beretta. The effect was quite dazzling as the happy man paraded up and down the sunny terrace. He looked like nothing so much as an enormous peony floating about on the hot bricks. He enjoyed it with such innocent pleasure, as of a little boy showing off a suit of shining armor just received from Santa Claus, that one could not but enjoy it with him. End quote. Remember that when describing Amory's first meeting with Monsignor Darcy in this side of paradise, Fitzgerald says, quote, when he came into a room clad in his full purple regalia from thatch to toe, he resembled a Turner Sunset, end quote. When Monsignor Fay preached or lectured in New York City, it was generally reported in the New York Times. He gave a lecture at Carnegie Hall to the League for Political Education in December 1918 entitled, The Pope in Relation to Permanent Peace. He pleaded for the formation of a League of Nations to prevent future wars. Saying that he was speaking for the Pope Fay said that the greatest man to influence this league would be the President of the United States. Cardinal Gibbons again assigned him to an overseas project in the Vatican in 1919. He first went to New York to preach at a retreat, but on the eve of his sailing for London, he was stricken with influenza toward the tail end of that epidemic and died on January 11th. Monsignor Sigourney Fay was 43 years old. As Cardinal Gibbons gave the final absolutions at his funeral, it is said that he looked the most stricken of all, for as he said, he was now left alone. His obituary in the Baltimore Sun mentions, quote, prior to his death, advice was received from the English foreign office that the king wished to receive him. Later, Monsignor Fay was to have preached at Manchester, Leeds, and other great labor centers. End quote. The obituary did not mention whether he was buried in his Monsignoral purple-pink finery. Fay was buried in the Hutchinson-Fay family plot, Section K, Lots 1-4, through 4, at Laurel Hill Cemetery, four days after he died. A collection of his sermons and writings... The Bride of the Lamb and Other Essays was gathered and published in 1922. Father Fay and Fitzgerald had developed an intense relationship, and after the Newman School experience, they wrote long, deeply revealing letters to each other for the rest of the priest's life. Fitzgerald went on to study at Princeton, where he encountered senior Golden Boy Hobart Amory Hare, Hobie Baker who died in 1918 and is interred at West Laurel Hill Cemetery. See part two of this podcast. When Fitzgerald published This Side of Paradise in 1920, it was dedicated to Sigourney Fay, misspelled. The main character, Amory Blaine, was based on Fitzgerald himself, taking one of the family names of his sports hero, Hobie Baker. The godlike football hero, Allenby, was based on Hobie. And the character of Monsignor Thayer Darcy was unmistakably Monsignor Sigourney Fay. Darcy even lived in a palatial mansion on the Hudson, almost identical to the home of Daisy Chandler. Many of the letters in the book between Amory and the Monsignor were practically copied word for word from letters between Fitzgerald and Fay. The Fay influence even carried over to Fitzgerald's 1925 book, The Great Gatsby, with Mrs. Sigourney Howard and, of course, the attractive, shallow, self-absorbed debutante, Daisy Fay Buchanan, named for Daisy Chandler and Sigourney Fay. The Newman School closed in 1941, and its records have been lost. Most of the Faye Fitzgerald letters, which Father Faye frequently signed Faye Fitz Senior, were burned by Faye's mother after the Monsignor's death, along with all his other private papers. After Faye's death, Fitzgerald expressed his passionate grief in a letter to a mutual friend. I can't tell you how I feel about Monsignor Faye's death. He was the best friend I had in the world. I've never wanted so much to die in my life. Father Fay always thought that if one of us died, the other would. The strong affection and extravagant grief the 22 year old Fitzgerald felt for the 43 year old priest were evident. He wrote in this same letter that he was now, quote, nearly sure I will become a priest, end quote. Fitzgerald, of course, did neither. He did not die, and he did not become a priest. One question often asked, was Sigourney Fay gay? He was certainly effeminate, or as it was known then, a dandy, with his high-pitched shrieks, his clouds of perfume, and his frequent apparent joy in wearing women's clothing. I have read arguments on both sides. When Gore Vidal reviewed the notebooks of F. Scott Fitzgerald and correspondence of F. Scott Fitzgerald in the New York Review of Books in 1980, he commented that, quote, pederasty was very much in the air at Newman's school. Fitzgerald's primary biographer, Matthew Broccoli acknowledges questions about Faye's sexuality, but suggests that, quote, if Father Faye was a homosexual, as has been asserted without proof, Fitzgerald was presumably unaware of it, end quote. Fitzgerald gave him the benefit of the doubt, again from Paradise. Quote, he was intensely ritualistic, startlingly dramatic, loved the idea of God enough to be a celibate, and rather liked his neighbor. End quote. According to his biographers, Fitzgerald himself was homophobic, but men, gay and straight, were drawn to him. Even the hypermasculine Ernest Hemingway wrote about Fitzgerald's quote delicate, long lipped Irish mouth that on a girl would have been the mouth of a beauty. The mouth worried you until you knew him, and then it worried you more. End quote. A line from this side of paradise explains Fitzgerald's opinion about Ivy League schools. Quote, I want to go to Princeton. I don't know why, but I think of all Harvard men as sissies like I used to be. End quote. In 1921, Susanna, and that's the way it was spelled, H. Fay, sent a large donation to the Basilica of the National Shrine of the Immaculate Conception in Washington, D.C. that paid for one of the crypt church's special chapels, venerating her namesake, St. Susanna, a Roman martyr who was beheaded in about 295 A.D. She dedicated it to her son, Monsignor Sigourney Fay. The story of a Protestant gift to a Catholic worship center warranted newspaper coverage in the 1920s. Sigourney Fay deserves his own biography and possibly even a one-man play. I read several articles about his influence on Fitzgerald. I saw no mention of the influence on him from his family or his time as an actor at Penn, Performing mostly female roles, or the effect that his death had on Cardinal Gibbons, and very little about his friendship with Henry Adams. In 1998, after three years researching Fay, historian Morris McGregor wrote, by now I have found hundreds of documents in scattered archives, enough to outline the main events in Fay's life. The always important who and what of the story, but alas, nowhere near enough to deduce causation, the vital why of Fay's actions. This remains largely elusive. Whole portions of his life still remain blank. Unfortunately, McGregor died a few years ago, never having completed his biography of Sigourney Fay. I can't pretend that I can add anything to the scholarship on this larger-than-life character. I would propose one possibility for people to investigate, though. In their first conversation in Paradise, this dialogue occurs. I was for Bonnie Prince Charlie, announced Amory. Of course you were. And for Hannibal. Yes, and for the Southern Confederacy. Blaine and Darcy, therefore Fitzgerald and Fay, had a mutual respect for underdogs and lost causes. Why would an overrefined son of Philadelphia society explain sympathy for the Confederacy? Maybe his burned letters would have revealed his feelings, but I can't help but think it might have to do with his distant relative, General John C. Pemberton, a Philadelphia gentleman who fought for the South during the Civil War and lost at the Battle of Vicksburg to Ulysses S. Grant. Pemberton is buried in Laurel Hill Cemetery, in the south section, of course. There is so much that we don't know about this remarkable man, Sigourney Fay, a highly perfumed, corpulent albino who enjoyed cross-dressing and who became indispensable to a cardinal and a pope and two major American authors. I think it is safe to say that F. Scott Fitzgerald as we know him now would not have existed without the guidance and affection from Monsignor Sigourney Fay. There is the possibility that with his name, connections, and especially his personality, Fay might have eventually been named an archbishop or even a cardinal of the Roman Catholic Church. Instead, he's been a resident at Laurel Hill Cemetery for more than a hundred years. I'm going to be talking with another of the tour guides from Laurel Hill Cemetery, Paul Vartan, the uh, who is, has a special interest in Hobie Baker. Paul, welcome.
1: Thank you very much.
0: Tell me, well, how did you develop this interest in Hobie?
1: Well, my involvement with Laurel Hill and West Laurel Hill goes back to when I was really young, actually, when I was in high school. And um, back then, I wasn't able to drive, so I was visiting them virtually through the website findthegrave.com, and it was always interesting to see who's famous, listed there at these different cemeteries, and I've got Ancestors Buried at West Royal Hill, so I always felt kind of tied to it. So I remember seeing Hobie's name, but it didn't really strike me too much, I didn't do any research into him at the time. However, years later, when I happened to read F. Scott Fitzgerald's *This Side of Paradise, I really got involved in that world and learned that Hobart Amory Harry Baker, uh, buried at West Laurel Hill, was actually the inspiration for one of the characters in it. So that just, it kind of took off from there. Uh, And as you we read about Hobie, there's something about his character that just really grips you. He's just an incredible figure, and it feels like I almost know him over the years. And so I've just
0: wanted to learn more and more about him, and his story really pulled me in. What, in your opinion, makes Hobie Baker such an important person in American history?
1: Well, he was groundbreaking in a number of respects when it comes to the accomplishments he had in sports, whether it was football, which was really taking on a new character at that time, or ice hockey, which was really just he was the first star, really, to put it on the map. He said to be the first one to ever skate backwards. And his character as well, I think, reaches us across the century now because you can almost feel it when you're reading about it you can feel people's admiration for him you can feel the larger than life character that he was and that everyone tells us he was it almost feels like you know him but at the same time you also get this picture of someone who is very honest and very, very just honest by the book and, and not of himself at all. So it's a really fascinating character and the psychological dynamics that into making him who he was just makes him an even more fascinating character to study beyond all the amazing sports accomplishments that he had.
0: How do you think his upbringing fed into that? Unfortunately, he had a very
1: broken family that he came from. Uh, he His mother was from the high society, uh, had a number of notable relatives and part of the Philadelphia social scene. And yet, unfortunately, the marriage didn't work out with Toby's father and they divorced and she actually kind of falls off the radar for years. Uh, said that you know she might have had at the time some mental health issues, and we don't really know what she was doing for much of Hobie's life. But in that, kind of just made him raised by his father. They didn't have the kind of money that maybe they, they once did. Uh, it was actually his brother who gave up his opportunity to go to Princeton so that Hobie could be the one to do it. And always aware of the fact, the sacrifices that were made for him to become what he was so instead of being someone that was so full of himself and so just into his greatness which he obviously could have been because you hear these stories of whenever he walked by everyone was looking at him turned everyone's head men women and yet he was just so almost like had this childlike innocence to him at the same time so it makes British fascinating contrast, then makes him a character that you really want to know more, because if he had been full of himself, which he had the right to be, he wouldn't quite have been the same kind of fascinating character, I think, that he really is.
0: Yeah, he grew up in Bala-Kinwood, which is where I've lived for the last 30-some years. Bala-Kinwood is sort of the low end of the main line, but it's still the main line back in the 1890s it wasn't much more than 70 or 80 houses and a lot of farmland i'm not sure how much his mother's influence would have had on that do you know how old he was when his mother left
1: yeah okay january 1892 she disappeared 1905 so yeah 13 years old when she left and then she came back 1917 and he went off to war like almost immediately after that even when she came back she barely had a chance to know him
0: Tell me about his education.
1: Keeping with the high society of Philadelphia, he was sent to St. Paul's, uh, which is a school up in New Hampshire. I think it was really formative for him because that is where ice hockey really became a sport in America. The headmaster or the head of athletics up there had been an ice hockey player himself, and so... He really made uh, the school this kind of farm team in L.A., where uh, a lot of the ice hockey players of the coming years got their training. While, of course, Hobie was extremely talented and famous in his role as a football player, he then had this other, completely different and yet equally impressive history as a or career as a, a hockey player. I think you know if he hadn't gone to St. Paul's and had gone to some other school, that hockey aspect of him never might never have happened. And while of course he still would have been extremely notable for what he did in football, I mean the, the fact that he's in both the hockey and football Hall of Fame is, is an extremely unique thing for him, and just shows what a caliber, kind of high caliber athlete he was.
0: Yeah, he is He is the only person in the Hockey Hall of Fame and the College Football Hall of Fame. You said it was sort of a feeder institution. There was no professional hockey at the time. What was St. Paul's feeding its hockey players into?
1: So the St. Paul's team that you referenced was a team of these high school, prep school kids. And they actually, because there were so few other ice hockey teams out there at the time, played against the big ivy league schools uh, like harvard which had their own team Uh, not many other colleges did and in fact it said that st paul's team beat harvard uh, more often than not so you can see just what a powerhouse uh, the training they got at st paul's was and perhaps the people a few years ahead of them which maybe had a didn't have as much time to Practice at it from such a young age. Uh, were not even as good as the up and comers. And then from there, there was also these amateur teams that the higher society would like to, you know, would go to and watch. They weren't professional. This was not the NHL or anything. But uh, there were these teams of whether maybe kids in college or or after college uh, that would play, and and Hobie actually would go up to the St. Nicholas Rink in New York City to take part in those teams when he got a little bit older. So there were these different outlets to play, but then as you can imagine over the next couple of years as ice hockey became more and more an organized thing and a more popular thing, the NHL and those types of professional teams came along later.
0: He was obviously the best amateur hockey player in the country. What kept him from turning pro?
1: Yes, and this is what also makes Hobie's story so rare, in my opinion. He was someone who was so into the doing things by the book and by the moral way and the proper way of doing things that he would not allow himself to go pro. He did not believe in playing sports for money he believed in the love of the game and doing things properly so professional sports at that time were not kind of seen in the same way that they are now so it's kind of this degree of tragedy in his story because as you can imagine someone who was on the top of everything through his formative years then finishes college and he has no options of where to go. There is nothing created for him at that time that would allow him to keep going as an athlete. What he was supposed to do now was, all right, you've had your fun, you've had your time doing that. Now, time to go to Wall Street, get a job like everyone else in your level of society or, you know, run your business. But that's not what Hubie was about. He was an athlete at heart. And to have reached the pinnacle of what existed at the time and then have nowhere else to go is left to feeling really bereft and empty and i think a lot of people can associate with that to one way or another where or even you know you've had those good times and now there's you kind of scuttle into this monotony uh but he was made for so much more but there there just wasn't the platform for him and he wouldn't go pro so that was it
0: yeah, while well, you were saying that, I had Bruce Springsteen's Glory Days running through my mind. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> that is that is the case with so many high school athletes and college athletes. That is the pinnacle of their life.
1: And yet he was had invented <laughs> skating backwards and doing other things. I mean, he was on a whole other level. He wasn't just the popular quarterback. I mean, he was everything when it comes to sports. And so, I mean, it's really if anyone deserved another act, it was him. And so. While he was able to play with the St. Nicholas Rink team and such, like I mentioned, there was just nothing beyond that for him.
0: He's in the College Football Hall of Fame. What did he do to earn that?
1: Well, they would describe him in these Princeton games as just having this grace on the field that nobody else had. He was able to dodge and dart around people. And this was a time when the rules of football were really changing. Going back to 1905, President Theodore Roosevelt, who was the rough-and-tumble president that was really into turning your boys into men, and, you know, he was certainly not shy about this type of what was a pretty brutal game at the time, and still is, but this was ten times worse. This was was the
0: whole whole philosophy of muscular Christianity, which had developed in the late 19th century.
1: Exactly, but the problem was, this was kind of a free-for-all. They didn't have rules. People were punching, and there was very little ball-throwing because they only had to go about five yards for a first down. And so what we'd have are the two lines colliding on the line of scrimmage constantly, and they would have these just just pylons, and sometimes when they'd get up, someone would be dead at the bottom. So it was really becoming uh, an emergency, and so Theodore Roosevelt, to save the game, said we need to do something to kind of make this a little bit less dangerous. Though it said the next year they actually had even more deaths on the field. But then by 1910 or so they had finally codified new rules because there was another case of multiple people dying and it just being too bloody and messy for people and there are a lot of people that wanted to end the institution. So 1910, new rules came in to make it a little bit less in your face like that and Hobie started playing right after that. So he was the very beginning of this newer hopefully well, a bit safer football, and yet he didn't wear a helmet ever. So they describe his blonde hair sticking out on the field, and everyone was watching it as he rushed and dart and dive around people uh, in a way that no one had really seen before. So everyone was just all eyes on him when it comes to his football prowess. Yeah,
0: I read that in addition to being a runner, he was a drop kick expert, and he also specialized in kick returns. He would gauge where the ball would be. He would stand further back, and get a running start and catch the ball on the run and take off down the field.
1: And what's really interesting is in this age now where every single person on the field has their very specific role, back then, you know, here's Hobie who can, again, just about do everything. You know, he's receiving, he's throwing, he's kicking. I mean, he's doing absolutely everything. Again, I guess that's a function of the times. Now everything is more... uh, Codified and we have these very specific roles for people, so they can't really get out and do that sort of thing. But back then, there was no you know, no need for specialization. It was kind of a free-for-all, and he had the freedom then to kind of just do just about anything.
0: Tell me more about Hobie's athleticism.
1: Well, some of the things that he was known for was he apparently put on roller skates one time, and within five minutes, were doing all kinds of tricks and... I'm sure, of course, his prowess in the ice uh, helped with that. But again, this is a different type of mode, and he didn't didn't take any time to just be doing all kinds of tricks on it. He also was known for being able to walk up a flight of steps on his hands, which is no mean feat. So again, I mean, just people... In the years to come, after him, as they were thinking back on what he was and what he meant to them, we get all these stories of just these incredible things he was doing on the field and off the field. That just gives us a picture of an effortless athlete. Again, it was not effortless for him. He was constantly practicing, constantly honing his skills. And yet, when he would do it, it would just look like magic to people.
0: Hobie joined the Army and became a pilot. How much athleticism do you think was involved in his being a pilot?
1: Well, and as you mentioned, this was Hobie's second act. So he had this period after Princeton of having to just kind of work the day job, and he was really kind of, I think, glum about it and kind of down the dumps because this was not the life he had envisioned. And after all that excitement, who can imagine just settling into this office routine and especially when are one of them, the greatest athletes that ever lived. So when the U.S. entered the war, This created a new field for Hobie to be showing his skills on, and he immediately was just so enthused to to sign up. Also, when we're thinking about him as a pilot at that time, we have to remember that that was the most dangerous and daring of all the positions because planes were just being used in battle for about the first time. This and, and planes were way in their infancy. So it was essentially seen as like sitting on an engine or a rocket, so to speak, with very little other Abilities, You know, very little control, very little anything. It was extremely dangerous. And so the type of bravery that it took for the men that did get into these planes is just off the charts. And yet, for an adrenaline junkie like Hobie probably was, you can imagine what that would do for someone like that. He has his chance to chase these thrills again that he got on the field. So, I mean, I, that's exactly kind of, I think, his history of an athlete, went right into that and then obviously you would imagine needing to have a great more deal of strength and control than maybe a pilot would today because these things were such prehistoric, so to speak, (laughs) planes that had very little control and were extremely dangerous.
0: Yeah, from what I've read about pilots in those days, they essentially slipped the plane on like a piece of clothing and then had to fly using their wits and their strength and their vision. They had absolutely no instrument help. It was all guts and strength. Was he an ace? Did he have any kills?
1: Well, I believe that Hobie had three confirmed kills to his name uh, when it comes to downing other planes, but he needed five to be an ace, so he doesn't actually qualify for that distinction. It's the only distinction he doesn't qualify for when it comes to these (laughs) types of highlights and titles to his name.
0: Tell me what happened to Hobie. Did he make it through the war?
1: Well, uh, depends how you define that. Uh, He did make it to the end of the war. But the whole mystery, and there are a lot of mysteries surrounding Obie. For someone that we know so well in the sports field, there are so many unresolved questions that we don't know uh, about his life and, and his personality especially. So uh, in December of 1918 December 21st or so it was almost about time for him to head back home which you can imagine he was not happy about He, he just you know suddenly this second act of amazing beats and and ways to distinguish himself was ending and he had to go back to that old life also said that he had a potential engagement someone he had been seeing and that that had fallen through with her so he was also probably depressed about that so what happened was one of the planes in in the area that he was it was he was uh, at an air base in France had been just had been fixed and Hobie offered he volunteered to be the one to give it that test flight. Now he was about to go home and so the the old superstitions around that was like never take that last flight all right before going, but that didn't be anything to Hobie and So he got up in that plane and said that it went up and then at some point it just kind of did a nosedive down and crashed. Unfortunately, he was killed. And that's led to one of the many age-old mysteries, which we'll never completely solve, but there was always that talk of, was this intentional was was this was faced with no way out going back to that almost prison of a life that he was imagining that he experienced after college you know was this a way to escape or was it like we said these planes were extremely dangerous and this plane had just been fixed and so maybe there was a a problem with it and it was a case of bad luck
0: paul how do we remember holby today
1: Well, I think the most touching and beautiful remembrance of him is this article that was in Sports Illustrated uh, 1991 or so which recounts his story. It's so beautifully written. It's regarded as one of Sports Illustrated's top 50 articles of all time. And anyone that's listening to this, I suggest that you go look it up. It's online, easy to find, because it just really encapsulates his story in such a beautifully told way. And at the time, the author does pay a visit to West Laurel Hill, and he talks about and with a lot of melancholy, the fact that Kobe is really forgotten now, this was in 1991 or so, and he said his grave is is kind of forlorn and forgotten. Well, the good news is that's no longer the case. When you go to his grave at West Lowell Hill, you see tons of hockey pucks left there a lot of people when they have their first game as often these children they'll write on it so-and-so's first game and they'll put it there on Hobie's grave and we had a hundredth anniversary of his death ceremony with some of his family members back in December of 2018 and then most famously there is the Hobie Baker Award which is given to an mvp in college hockey every single year and it's a very notable award so there are these various ways that he's being remembered and more and more people are rediscovering him so it's it's really great to know that unlike it says in the sports Illustrated article he's indeed not forgotten and he's still an inspiration to a lot of young hockey players out there
0: yeah isn't the um, the hockey rink at princeton named for him also
1: exactly his classmates uh, after his death got together raised money and they made the baker rink which is still there and i think it's still being used as of now
0: i go visit hobie every decoration day i'm old-fashioned i still call it decoration day but if i can i stop by and i spend a minute or two in solitude and i salute And I count the hockey pucks. I think we're up to 35 now. When I first started going, there might have been two or three. That was 30 years ago. But I always read the poem out loud. There's a poem on his gravestone. Tell us about that.
1: Yes, this is one of the most mysterious, again, aspects of him. Who wrote this poem and where did it come from? And it always kind of fascinated me. It's a beautiful poem which invokes the story of Icarus, not by name, but it it talks about, you know, this amazing youth that kind of flew too close to the sun, which is a a beautiful way of describing his life. However, there's no attribution on the stone as to who the author was. And for years, all the works that were written about him, that poem would show up, but it would always be said anonymous or unknown. So I know for me, it really fascinated me to see this beautiful poem there. And I really want to get to the bottom of where it come from. And And in reading a lot of different works besides the typical anonymous, one of them said it was his mother that wrote it, which seems like a very touching tribute, but it didn't quite Strike me as right. I, I I don't. I didn't know she was the one that did that. Unbeknownst to me, around the same time as I figured it out, by figuring out I mean I would Google the phrases of the poem occasionally. Never brought anything up. One day though, uh, it turns out an old book by a poet had the poem in it. But little did I know that. Just uh, around the same time, a scholar named J.P. Archer, who has been diving into Princeton's work on Hobie, all, all his, his papers are there, his archive, Princeton, and he discovered separately on his own, a little bit prior to that I did, going the long way there, uh, he, he discovered that it, that this poem was published originally in a book called Tossed Coins by a poet named Amory Hare. Now, if that name sounds familiar, it's because Hobie's full name is Hobart Amory Hare Baker. So then it says, wait a minute, <laughs> you know, did, did Hobie write the, did he write the poem about himself, about his own death? No. Oh, no. Uh, it turns out his first cousin, the daughter of Dr. Hobart Amory Hare, who was a very well-known Philadelphia surgeon, he, he, was, he was married to Hobie's mother's sister. So their daughter had the name Mary Amory Hare taking from the family names she wrote this poem about kobe who she knew as a youth and was inspired by the story and and she had it published in the princeton alumni magazine and yet seems that none of them actually remembered or knew because when they did their research they always attributed it to someone unknown and so it's kind of strange that they would have missed that added to this mystery for years of who wrote the poem, and it was actually his first cousin. I ordered a copy of the book.
0: I found one on eBay, and it was actually signed by her, too, so it's kind of cool to see that,
1: but yeah.
0: Did she sign it with her maiden name or her married name? Do you know the significance of that last name Hutchinson? That's the other half of today's podcast, is Monsignor Sigourney Fay, Whose mother was Suzanne Hutchinson? So, so
1: that was in the same family. Yes. Oh wow! Again, and there's so many. (laughs) Monsignor (laughs) Fay.
0: Monsignor Fay and Hobie Baker are related. They are distant cousins.
1: brief reference made to Hovey in This Side of Paradise, F. Scott Fitzgerald describes this character, Allenby, as an ideal worthy of everything in my enthusiastic admiration, yet consummated and expressed in a human being who stood within 10 feet of me. And I, I think that really sums up the kind of response we get from so many people that knew Hovey, that he was just this person to worship almost and yet he's you know right in front of you and and the fact that he was so kind and humble about it he was not below talking to the freshman and he, he was always about fair play and being nice to everybody which is what's just so refreshing and what maybe brought him into so many people's hearts
0: is there anything you want to add to our knowledge of hobie baker
1: one more aspect of hobie's grave that really interests me is the very fact that he's there at West Hill. So what happened is he died in 1918 and in the years to come, after the war kind of died down and Europe started to rebuild, there were many American cemeteries over there. They also repatriated a lot of those killed and Hobie was one of them that they brought back. So in 1922, they returned his remains to America and at that point, his father, who had been the person in his life for all those years who had really raised him had died uh, in 1920. So Hobie's mother, who had left around 1905, disappears from the story, and then reappeared only in 1917, right as Hobie was going off the war. And he kind of got to know his mother a little bit in the very final, that final year of his. She was now his next of kin, basically, instead of the father that had always kind of been that one in Hobie's life. And he was always tied to that side of family. So perhaps as a final claiming, of Hobie as her own. She created her own crop at West Laurel Hill.
0: A flame that burned too brightly, Hobie oh. Baker. Paul, thank you very much. I really appreciate the chance to talk about Hobie. It's one of my favorite characters in all of history and, and at our West Laurel and Laurel Hill families. The poem that Paul and I talked about that's inscribed on Hobie's tombstone is pretty typical of its time. You seemed winged, even as a lad, with that swift look of those who know the sky. It was no blundering fate that stooped and bade you break your wings and fall to earth and die. I think someday you may have flown too high, so that immortals saw you and were glad, watching the beauty of your spirit's flame, until they loved and called you, and you came." Well, the decision has been made. The Cemetery Museum at the Gatehouse of Laurel Hill Cemetery will not reopen this calendar year. You can still honor the centenary of the 19th Amendment with us virtually the exhibit is called their legacies the women of laurel hill and west laurel hill cemeteries and it celebrates achievements of 16 women buried at laurel hill and west laurel hill cemeteries the exhibit is just one way that the friends of laurel hill and west laurel hill cemeteries are celebrating 100 women for the 100 years since the passing of the 19th Amendment. I've talked about several of these women in prior podcasts. Go to the thelaurelhillcemetery.org. Click on the Visit drop-down menu. Scroll down to Online Exhibit for your own PDF copy of the exhibit. It's free, but donations to the Friends of Laurel Hill and West Laurel Hill Cemeteries are greatly appreciated. Next time, in the November edition of All Bones Considered, Laurel Hill Stories, celebrate the Marine Corps' 245th birthday on November 10th. Tun Tavern here in Philadelphia is considered their birthplace. I will tell you about Levi Twiggs, a 34-year veteran who was killed at the halls of Montezuma. Jacob Zilin, the Corps' first non-brevet general officer. And enlisted man, Richard Binder a German immigrant, awarded the Medal of Honor for his service aboard the USS Ticonderoga, who returned to Philadelphia to resume his career as a barber and hairdresser. Next month on Send the Marines. Cemetery is located at 3822 Ridge Avenue, in the East Falls section of Philadelphia. It's just a block from the SEPTA 61 bus stop at Ridge and Allegheny. Admission is free, as is parking in the lot across the street. West Laurel Hill Cemetery is at 225 Belmont Avenue in Kinwood with parking available at the main entrance and at the bell tower. Both Laurel Hill Cemetery and West Laurel Hill Cemetery are open from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. from May to October and 7 a.m. to 5 p.m. November through April. We welcome dog walkers, bike riders, photographers, bird watchers, nature buffs, and strollers, both the two-footed and four-wheeled variety. And we are open for tours again. If you're willing to wear a nose and mouth cover and stay six feet apart from everyone who is not a family member, check out some of the upcoming tours. If you're still not ready to show up in person, we are also doing virtual tours. Find out more at thelaurelhillcemetery.org or westlaurelhill.com. There's something else to satisfy your curiosity, laurelhillcemetery.blog, where you can read even more about interesting people. And if you follow us on Instagram, you'll get a daily reminder of our inhabitants and activities. And once you've fallen in love with these hot spots, become a friend of Laurel Hill and West Laurel Hill, and you will have the opportunity for several members-only special tours conducted each year. They may be cemeteries, but they are a couple of the liveliest spots in town. I'm Joe Lex, reminding you to keep body and soul together until next time on All Bones Considered, Laurel Hill Stories, where the plot thickens. Stick around if you want to hear my references for this show. When I first discovered Monsignor Sigourney Fay's tomb late last year, I became obsessed with him. I started to read anything that I could about him. Virtually everything I read was because of his relationship to F. Scott Fitzgerald. So much of his churchly work was ignored, with one huge exception. What I used, Alan Joan M., Candles and Carnival Lights, The Catholic Sensibility of F. Scott Fitzgerald. That's New York University Press, 1978. Maggie Gordon-Frelick, Gatsby's Mentor, Queer Relations Between Love and Money in the Great Gatsby. It's from the Journal of Men's Studies, Volume nineteen, number three, fall 2011, pages 2009 to 226. Also by Maggie Gordon Fralick, passionate discretion. Fitzgerald in the unpublished correspondence of Sigourney Fay, Shane Leslie, and William Hemick. The F. Scott Fitzgerald Review, volume ten, 2012, pages two through 26. Tracy Fessenden, F. Scott Fitzgerald's Catholic closet. It's from the U.S. Catholic Historian, Volume 23, Number 3, American Fiction and Catholic Culture, Summer of 2005, pages 19 through 40. Then, of course, Mrs. Winthrop Chandler, Autumn in the Valley, published by Little Brown and Company, Boston, 1936. And Stephen Schmalhofer, Widely Beloved, The New Criterion, February 25th of 2020. But the best by far to read about Fay's work for and with the Church is Morris McGregor, Sigourney Fay, God's Happy Gadfly, in the Catholic Historical Society of Washington newsletter, July-September 1998, pages 3 through 10. It is not available online. I did get a PDF of it from the archives of the Catholic University of America. If you want a copy of this, email me, joe at joelex.net, and I will send it to you. It is fascinating reading. The definitive Hobie Baker article is found in the online archives of Sports Illustrated magazine. Search for A Flame That Burned Too Brightly by Ron Fimrite, F-I-M-R-I-T-E. As Paul pointed out, it's a terrific read. It's what turned me on to Hobie Baker 30 years ago. Actually, Hobie's Wikipedia article is excellent also. I admit I was not impressed by the Baker biography I read, Hobie Baker, America's Legend by Emil Salvini. I really didn't learn anything new. I'm Joe Lex. Thanks a lot for listening. Until the next time we meet, stay safe, stay well.